It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. So the United States Supreme Court has dominated the news. And besides the fact that we have a new justice, Justice Kavanaugh, well, the business of the court has just started and continues. Um, They have different terms, and the October term has just recently started. And there are a lot of cases that are important cases that may not be on the news. In fact, you will hear far less now about what the Supreme Court does than we did during this process of getting a new justice, most likely. Some things percolate to the national news, but there are a lot of things that don't that affect all of us. And so I called upon someone to talk about a few things that are coming up with this term, a classmate and a fellow law dog from the University of Georgia School of Law with me, where we graduated about 31 years ago. And he's looking at me like, why tell how long? Um, but he was one of the, I'll, I'll say it now, he was smart then and he stayed smart and an incredible attorney in Atlanta. I want you to meet Mike Terry. Hi, Mike. Good morning. How are you doing? Great. Mike is a partner at Bondurant, Mixon and Elmore in Atlanta, Georgia and has tried so many cases and is also known for his appellate work. Appellate work being after a case has been tried and the issues go up on appeal, whether it's in the state courts or the federal courts, and he has argued so many cases and is a keen observer of what the Supreme Court does and is a trusted source for a lot of media with regard to his thoughts. So I've got Mike here talking about some cases that are coming up, and the first one we want to talk about, well, actually, before we get to the cases, can you just kind of talk to us a little bit about how a case gets to the Georgia Supreme, I mean, it's not the Georgia, the U.S. Supreme Court, beyond what we learn from school? You know, what are the things, how does a case get there? Well, you know, the United States Supreme Court is the only court that's set forth in the Constitution. And the Constitution says there shall be a Supreme Court and then there shall be such inferior courts as Congress shall decide. So all of our other federal courts are set up by statutes, uh, by laws passed by Congress and signed by the president. But the Supreme Court has a separate constitutional existence. Its jurisdiction, that is, the kinds of cases that it can take, is limited And it can take certain cases like a lawsuit between two states, and it takes that directly and that the trial would be in the Supreme Court. We see that in the Waterworks cases. They send them to a special master. But the Supreme Court has And I'm going to say Waterworks cast. What are you talking sure. about when you say sure. Waterworks So uh, the water rights cases uh, are the case between Alabama, Georgia, and Florida over who has access to the water in the Chattahoochee and in what amounts. And the Supreme Court takes it because it's a dispute among states. Exactly. And it wouldn't be fair for once to go to Alabama to litigate it or Georgia or Florida because you could say, well, those courts are biased in the state level. And so a federal level would be appropriate. That's right. But not only a federal level, but it goes straight to the United States Supreme Court. 
And so that's the very rare case. But the vast majority of cases and everything that we hear about and read about in the media, almost every case uh, reaches the Supreme Court through what's called certiorari. And that is a process by which a decision of either a circuit court of appeals, that is the federal appeals court, or a decision of any state Supreme Court on an issue of federal law is presented to the Supreme Court of the United States by the losing party uh, below with an application and an explanation of why this case is particularly important and clearly presents a, a federal statutory or constitutional issue that needs resolution by the U.S. Supreme Court that needs resolution at the highest levels. Now, they take about between one and two percent, I think most recently two percent of the cases that apply. So your odds of getting uh, certiorari granted, we call it cert. And I'm going to say that throughout the day because lawyers just say cert. So the and odds cert meaning that the Supreme Court, I accept this case to listen to and we'll hear it from both sides. Yes, it's, it's from the Latin term, writ of certiorari. But uh, we just say cert and, and, and I'll fall into that, uh, I'm sure. But generally, um, you know when you apply for cert that your odds are very small, statistically. I mean, some cases seem very likely to get there, but, but around 2% of the cases get granted. You write a petition. The other side can respond to the petition. Generally, in important cases, outside interest groups will weigh in and tell the Supreme Court why or why not uh, this case is very important and how it should turn out. The Supreme Court then reviews all the materials votes on the case, and it takes four out of the nine Supreme Court justices to take a case. It doesn't take a majority. If four out of nine think it's sufficiently important to decide, they will then decide it. Now, determining who wins takes five out of nine or a majority. So let's get to some cases that they're considering during this term, and I'm going to start with one. These are some excellent suggestions by you. Gamble versus the United States. So let's talk about what it's not about gambling, but the, the party's name, one of the parties involved, last name is Gamble. So what is it dealing with? Well, Gamble is the the hot case on the Internet right now. It is the uh, the center of um, the conspiracy theorists and uh, of real concern constitutional scholars. And um, the Gamble case deals with several legal issues. The first of those is double jeopardy. And double jeopardy is one of the provisions of the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. Now, you know, we're all familiar with the right to remain silent, which is when you hear someone has invoked the Fifth or, you know, oh, I'm taking the Fifth. Right. Every movie, every it's one of the few things we all know, the Fifth Amendment. Right. And the Fifth Amendment doesn't just have the right to remain silent. It has other provisions as well. One is called the Double Jeopardy Clause. Now, I'm going to read it to you, and this is what it says. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. Now, what does in that mean? In English. In English, it, sure. <laughs> in English, that means generally you can't be tried twice for the same offense uh, if the first case reaches a resolution. That's the fundamental basis of, of double jeopardy. So that if you were tried and you were found innocent, you can't be tried again. And so that, that's fundamentally how, how we understand the Fifth Amendment to function. Now, over the years, and there's a lot of reasons that this doctrine developed, we developed an exception to the double jeopardy rule. And that exception dates back to, I think, about 1927. And it's called the dual sovereign exception. 
And boy, there's people on both sides of the political spectrum who hate and love this doctrine, all depending on how the facts break down in their case. And the doctrine derives from the federal nature of the United States government because the states and the United States are seen as separate sovereigns. They are bound together in a compact, the United States Constitution, but within their own spheres, each one is supreme. So there are areas which the Congress of the United States and the federal government cannot tell the states what to do. The states are in charge. There are other areas where the United States, the federal government is in charge. Because they are both sovereigns, that is, they're each totally in charge at a certain level of some aspects of what goes on in our daily lives, a doctrine developed that if the federal government tried someone for something and they were found not guilty, or the state tried someone for a crime and they were not guilty, the other one, the state or federal as the case may be, could also try them if it violated the laws of that doctrine, of that uh, entity. So let's talk about some of the cases that we've seen in the past. You might have a civil rights case or you might have a, a well, let's not call it a civil rights case. Let's call it, you know, the crimes against civil rights workers back in the early 60s. And there might be a crime against a civil rights work murder or, or worker. Let's say a murder of a civil rights worker. And the state decides that it doesn't want to take this seriously. It doesn't like these intervening civil rights workers. So it prosecutes it as assault and battery. Like it's something as small as a mis- misdemeanor. Right, exactly. And the person is convicted of something that gets, you know, 30 days in jail for killing a civil rights worker. Or let's say that... The, or they could have been acquitted. Or they could have been acquitted and frequently would be because, you know, the prosecutors might not put on a good case intentionally or not. Or the judge might have his thumb on the scale of justice. Or a jury pool in that particular jurisdiction would never convict one of their own for having murdered someone that, you know, they thought had, you know, showed up in their county, you know, ruining their lifestyle or ideas about, you know, race and and, and what the federal government was imposing upon them. That's absolutely right. And so what developed is if the state failed to convict or convicted of what I would call sort of fraudulent charges or or, uh, charges that made a mockery of the seriousness of the of the offense, then the federal government could step in if the crime also violated federal law. It had to also violate federal law. You could then be prosecuted by the federal government for the violation of the federal statute, even though you had been acquitted uh, or convicted of a smaller offense for violation of the state statute governing the same precise conduct. So because the two entities, federal and state government, were seen to be separate sovereigns, separate nations, as it were, the double jeopardy clause was deemed not to prohibit one from prosecuting after the other did. And the example you give is, you know, a compelling one of taking into account the evolution of our society's ideas about what's right or wrong and and how we handle things. The flip side of it is, and I'll be a criminal defense attorney hat for a little while, if I am defending someone now and in a state case and they are acquitted and then I find out later that I have to try it again because the federal government's going after it, I think, hey, what happened to, you know, my double jeopardy of, you know, I've been acquitted and why do I have to face trial again for Maybe it's a different statute, but the act itself is the same. The underlying facts are still the facts. It's just being applied to a different law. And I think that's 
part of what's being wrestled with now. And correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think that's right. And you, um, what, there are a couple of things that before this would even come into play, you really do have to show it's the same acts. And you also have to show essentially it's the same elements of the crime. But to get outside of double jeopardy and forget about the dual sovereign rule, you have to show that each crime, the federal or the state or the two successive federal in that instance, have each one has separate elements. So let's say to prove the crime, the first crime that is prosecuted, you have to prove elements one, two, three, and four. You know, you were uh, you, you killed the person, you did it intentionally, etc. You have to prove four things. If you're acquitted of that, if there's another crime you want to prosecute for and not be covered by the double jeopardy clause, you have to have an additional element, something else that has to be proven, and at least one of the elements of the first crime has to not be required for the second one. And if you got that, then there's no double jeopardy at all. But absent that, you run into you know, the double jeopardy problem. The states and federal government have used the dual sovereignty exception to get around that. Now, recognizing the very unfairness that you were just talking about of being held twice, you know, you're acquitted, you thought you won, you thought you were good, and here you go again with the federal government on your back. The federal government years ago adopted something called the uh, petite policy. It's not small. It's just named after the case where it arose. And the petite policy basically sets forth a set of about seven or eight check marks they have to do before they can do a second prosecution. And for instance, it has to be a particularly uh, important federal interest that was not at issue in the state prosecution. You know, and the federal interest has to has to have not been considered or vindicated in the state prosecution. So and or corruption in the state prosecution wouldn't be another reason. But they do have a very lengthy checklist they have to go to before bringing a second prosecution because they recognize that unfairness. But it still happens. So the Gamble case. Well, let's talk about Gamble first and then maybe we can talk for a minute about why people are all up in arms about it today. Got it. So Gamble uh, it's just sort of your, your very straightforward. Mr. Gamble's driving along. He has, I think, a burned out taillight. He gets pulled over. They search his car incident to the uh, stop and they find a gun and drugs. He's prosecuted and convicted. And then the federal government prosecutes him for the gun. So yeah, th there's really none of the exigent circumstances that normally would lead the federal government to prosecute a second time. And so what is their justification for doing it again? Well, I mean, I think they, the control of the gun by, I believe, a convicted felon, you know, they, it was very important to them. They didn't think the sentence was enough. That's basically it. So it doesn't and really... That, and, and that just puts the little criminal defense lawyer heart, you know, you know, I, you know, I've tried it. I've been in front of a judge. I'm convicted. My client's convicted. The judge sentences. And now someone's going behind saying, well, that just wasn't enough. And so it, it, this really puts kind of a stark outline on the unfairness. It doesn't have a lot of those factors that make it seem okay to prosecute again when there's something corrupt or inadequate about the state prosecution. Right, because, you know, I think back to like, you know, police misconduct cases, for instance, you know, where they'll, on a local level, the police will be acquitted of conduct and it turns out there was excessive force and the feds come in and have the factors that you're talking about, but still, you know, rightfully, you know, have the person prosecuted. But here, just because you don't like the sentence... So it's, it, it's, you know, I don't really understand the, the thinking of the feds in prosecuting this, but they did. And so basically we are up in front of the Supreme Court 
trying to do away with the um, with the dual sovereign exception. Now, why is that a hot button issue today? Gee, I wonder why <laughs> uh, this particular presidency has brought about some new issues. Um, and uh, we have a new justice on the court. We do, and we have one who has, you know, um, opined about this issue and would tend to say there should be no dual sovereign exception to double jeopardy. So Judge Kavanaugh has already given his opinion in other ways. And so so here we now sit. Now Justice, sorry. Now Justice Kavanaugh. So here we sit, um, and we are dealing with not a normal situation, but we're dealing with the pardon power. And that's really where this comes into play. Now, there's been a lot written on the Internet about this, and, and some of it's accurate and much of it is not. So how does it tie into the pardon power? Sure. Um, in the ordinary course, I don't believe that jeopardy would attach merely through the granting of a pardon. If someone is pardoned before they've ever been prosecuted, the president let's, – let's step back a second. The president of the United States has the power to pardon only for federal offenses. He can't grant a pardon for the violation of state – uh, conduct, violation of state statutes. So uh, we've all heard these discussions. Gosh, if the president pardons X person in his cabinet or X member of his family, um, they could still be prosecuted in the state system. And so, you know, they're still they're still in jeopardy. Isn't that great? Uh, and so that that's that's how that goes. And then you hear, well, uh, gamble if it goes uh the wrong the wrong way will uh, allow him to essentially pardon for state offenses as well. Now, how would that work? Well, in my mind, that could only work once jeopardy has attached in the federal system. But say someone is convicted, like Mr. Manafort, or pleads guilty, uh, jeopardy has then attached. If he were pardoned after that, if the dual sovereign exception is is gone. There would be no state prosecution. There'd be no state prosecutions available, except to the extent you could get outside of double jeopardy by you know the definition of the elements of the crimes being sufficiently different, uh, not overlapping in both directions. But you'd be severely limited in what would still be available as a state prosecution. And in many instances, there would be nothing still available. And so what's interesting about this case is, again... One thing that happens in law more frequently than we realize is, you know, there are groups called that do amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs. In other words, the parties put forth their responses to what the law each side. But with the Supreme Court, other folks can chime in and say, for instance, there's ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, will chime in or a different group will chime in. And in this one, it actually is some folks who are writing amicus briefs over concerns of some of the things I was talking about in terms of pure double jeopardy, as opposed to some people look at this as a way of protecting against Trump granting a pardon to right. people who are connected to his administration. So it, it, it creates a strange dynamic in some ways. Well, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. The The ACLU, for example, in this particular case, has weighed in on behalf of eliminating the dual sovereign exception. Uh, that is, the ruling the ACLU seek is the ruling that would benefit President Trump's ability to more effectively pardon those uh, within his inner circle. 
So politics makes strange bedfellows, and so does Supreme Court cases. And so we're going to have to watch for that one, but there's some more to talk about. So let's go to the Franchise Tax Board of California versus Hyatt, which just the title probably has those of you listening now, really? Franchise Tax Board of California versus Hyatt? Why is this interesting to us? Well, this is part of what I would call the ongoing federal governmental effort to insulate its conduct from attack or reach or challenge by citizens. So this deals with the issue of sovereign immunity. That is, if the government does something to you, if a government worker driving a government truck on government business runs over you in a crosswalk, can you sue the government? And generally, the rule is no. There's something called sovereign immunity, and that means that you can't sue the government without its permission. So some states have statutes that will allow you to sue for certain things, not for others. Some allow you to sue only where there's insurance coverage and only to the amount of the insurance coverage, and then they may or may not buy insurance. So, um, But sovereign immunity is the doctrine that keeps you from suing the federal government and keeps you from suing the state. Now, a number of years ago, in a case called Nevada versus Hall, the um, United States Supreme Court said, well, you can't sue the state uh, in the state if, unless the state authorizes you to. I can't sue the state of Georgia in Georgia unless Georgia authorizes me to do so. And I can't sue them uh, in federal court here. But they said you can sue the state of Georgia in South Carolina if they do something that hurts someone in South Carolina. You can't be a Georgia resident harmed by the state and just decide that you want to go to South Carolina and file your lawsuit. But if you're in South Carolina or live in South Carolina and you're harmed by an action of the state of Georgia, then you can um, you can sue them uh, in South Carolina under the case of Nevada versus Hall. Now, the the Franchise Tax Board case has just an amazing uh, history. It dates back to 1991. Wow, that's that's been brewing for a long time. Yes. So. Hyatt is not Hyatt Hotels. Hyatt is uh, an inventor, uh, internet gazillionaire. He's a very wealthy guy. And in 1991 or 1992, and that's sort of the issue, he moved from California, which has high state income taxes, to Nevada, which has none. He filed his 1990... Perhaps on the advice of counsel at that time. Uh, It could be. (laughs) He then filed his 1991 tax returns claiming he had lived in Nevada in 91. The state of California said, no, you didn't. You hadn't moved yet. You didn't move till 92. They got in a fight about it and they charged him for his taxes. And they allegedly committed a number of torts that is wrongful acts against him in the context of uh, investigating this, you know, invasion of privacy and, and various things they did to him that were would result in a lawsuit against a private party if they did it. Their conduct was not controlled uh, and and they were not well-behaved in the process of chasing after what they saw to be a tax cheat. Which is is a concern for any citizen because, you know, if the government goes too far, certainly it sounds like Mr. Hyatt has the resources to fight this. He did. But not everybody does. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, he sued them in Nevada because he was living in Nevada in 1998. The case went up through the system early on, through the appellate system. Can you sue the state of California and a number of other issues at at issue? And it went up to the United States Supreme Court in 2002. The state state of California wanted a ruling. You can't 
sue. And the Supreme Court ruled on some other issues, but said, you didn't adequately raise the issue. We're not going to decide the issue of whether the state of California is immune. So they went back down to the trial court. They had a trial in 2008. Now, at that point, we're already talking 17 years after the tax return at issue. And he was awarded $490 million. Wow. A lot of money. A lot um, of money. A lot of money. Which means more litigation. It means more litigation. We'll back up the appellate chain after the 2008 trial on the $490 million award against the state of California, which for some reason the state of California was not happy about. So it went back to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2016. Now, they then voted on, can he sue the state of California? Is the old Nevada versus Hall rule that you can sue one state in another state, is that correct? Did we get that right the first time? But they split equally. It was an equal vote. But they ruled against Mr. Hyatt anyway on other grounds. They said, well, this $490 million is crazy because if you had sued Nevada for this conduct, you could only have recovered $50,000. That they, they have, have a cap. They have a cap. They, they have, have a cap state on, law on that right sets. state law that caps verdicts against the state. And they said uh, we don't. We're not deciding whether you can sue California, but you certainly can't treat California worse in Nevada than you could treat Nevada in Nevada. Now, that's a very heavily criticized decision, and it was a split decision because you know that the Nevada laws say no lawsuit against the state of Nevada shall be for more than fifty thousand dollars or something like that, specific to Nevada. It didn't say anything. Didn't about say anything California about California or, or any Ohio state, or New York. Or so it was seen as a compromise to try and knock the top off this very large verdict, but because they didn't have the votes one way or the other to decide whether the lawsuit could go forward at all. So now we're at round three. So we're at round three. Well, we go back down. And the Nevada courts reduced the $490 million verdict after the Supreme Court of the United States 2016 decision. They reduced it down to $100,000. They managed to come up with a way to double the cap, saying, well, you could have done that against the state of Nevada as well. So he's got $100,000. But, of course, the state of California just wants a rule that it can't be sued. So now we're back in the United States Supreme Court. Now, um, you know, it doesn't look like we're going to... We're not going to get a tie again. We've got an odd number of justices now. So this issue is going to get decided. And I think most of the money is on the uh, the idea that you're not going to be allowed to sue one state in another state. Um, up until now, that has rested not on the constitutional doctrine of sovereign immunity, but it's rested on what's called comity. And that is the rule that the states will, uh, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. The states will treat each other as they would like to be treated in their sister state. So the states have always extended, or not always, frequently extended immunity to the other state as they would expect the other state to extend it to them. Nevada just didn't feel that brotherhood towards California. So they're trying to make this a mandatory federal constitutional doctrine that you can't go to another state and, and sue your former state. Which has wide-ranging consequences for a country where businesses are incorporated in different states, so they're citizens of different states, and disputes come up. And it could be that there's some creative corporate lawyering or you know decisions on parties could make for disparate results across the country. Well, that's right. And I think that combines with another trend in the federal courts, which is to sort of limit 
where you can get jurisdiction over a corporation, where a corporation is subject to jurisdiction, it's been more and more limited recently so that, you know, a multi-state organization, a, a nationwide organization like a, a Microsoft or an Apple, you might only be able to sue them in California or it might be California and Delaware, depending on the state. So it's being more and more limited. So if a state does something to one of those corporations, the corporation uh, might very well have the right to sue them in their home state. If it's something that takes monies out of their coffers, out of their bank accounts in California, they might be able to sue the state of Georgia in California. So that's uh, that, that becomes very important to those nationwide corporations. So with having been before the court before and now we have a new justice, do you see this Justice Kavanaugh as the tipping point here or is the argument now changed enough that it could go in any way? Sure. Well, this is remember, this is the third time. That exactly. We're up, and last time was in 2016. So we didn't have Justice Gorsuch either at that point. In okay. time. So we've got, uh, so two, we got two different people. Yeah, got two different people. And uh, both of them tend to be, I would say, extraordinarily conservative. And generally, those who are extraordinarily conservative lean towards an expansive view of sovereign immunity. Uh, and so, you know, that's why the, the betting money is on a ruling either 5-4 or 6-3 that you cannot sue one state in another state. Interesting. All right. We're going to roll it out with one more, a little bit shorter. Sure. Frank versus Gauss. And we may be pronouncing that wrong. G-A-O-S, because none of us know exactly. And if the Gauss is going to contact me, I'll get it corrected. Well, th this case is fascinating for one reason. Mr. Frank, who will be arguing it, is not a lawyer. So he is pro se, which is the term in the law when because you have that right to represent yourself without counsel. Well, that's right. And he is a sort of I would call an anti-class action advocate. He's just I'm not sure he so much hates class actions as he hates class action settlements. And so he has intervened in a number of class action settlements. If you're a member of the class. Let's say you own stock in a company and the shareholders or the directors do something that harms the shareholders and a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit is filed. When a settlement is announced, you can object to the settlement and it happens very seldom and it's usually non-meritorious. You know, there, there are a lot of terms for the people who do that for a living, but um, he, every time he owned stock in somebody or, or was a member of a class, he would intervene and fight the settlements and say the settlements were inadequate or the lawyers were getting too much money. And this case is um, his latest endeavor. And um, he's gotten all the way to the Supreme Court with it. And the issue is this was a case where the settlement involved a couple of million dollar payment to the lawyers. And there's also millions of dollars for the class members. But there's so many class members, so many people impacted by the wrongful They're conduct. They're just getting... Four cents. Four cents. Four Whoa. cents. And the lawyers are making millions. Right. Now, the, and then the big issue in this case, I mean, you know, look, if, if I've got, you know, 100 million people who are damaged four cents each and I get them each their four cents, I should get paid for doing that. Because the, the main part of this is to tell the corporation, you're going to pay for what you did. Quit doing that. Don't do it again. That's the important part of that. But here, because the four cents was less than the cost of transmitting checks to the class members, the judge approved a settlement which said, you know what, we're going to take those couple of million dollars that would be going out four cents at a time to the class members and we'd spend more money mailing it out than it's worth. And we're going to give it to organizations that combat consumer fraud, et cetera. So they, they, they do what's called a Cypre donation. They donate the money. Normally what happens with Cypre is 
you have money for the class members, you can't find some of them, there's some leftover dollars, you give those to a charitable organization. Here, all of the money that didn't go to the lawyers went to the Cypre uh, recipients, that is the, the people who are supposed to help combat consumer fraud, and they're using the money for that. Now, the trial judge reviewed all this, had a hearing on you know whether this was the best way to do it, given how little money there was and how much it would cost to distribute it. He said, yes. So we're going to find out whether the Supreme Court is going to say, you just can't do that. There has to be money. And why, what is Mr. Frank's concern? Well, his concern is there's no money going to the class members and there's money going to the lawyers. But Mr. Frank is also somebody who, you know, has uh, apparently frequently objected to settlements on all kinds of different grounds. So he's he's just, he's been uh, labeled in some circles as the enemy of the class action. Uh, others, you know, don't don't agree, think he's just trying to make them better. I don't know him and I don't have an opinion on that. I only know what I've read. But um, but, but it should be very interesting listening to a pro se litigant in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. There's been a very rigorous you know, going to the U.S. Supreme Court. I haven't done it, but um, even just my visits to the Georgia Supreme Court, you are on your toes. I um, have to respond to answers. And I, I'm imagining not much room just because you're pro se for not conducting yourself in the manner that the court expects. Well, that's right. But I will tell you that it, the history of pro se litigants arguing in front of the United States Supreme Court over the last couple of decades has been one of some fairly amazing performances. I've listened. To, uh, they don't release videos, but they have audio tapes. And I've listened to some of them. And really, some of them have made some very moving and compelling arguments. Uh, you know, look, the ability to argue is not uh, something that comes merely from being in law school. It's enhanced and you learn, you know, the research skills and things. But I've heard some wonderful uh, and persuasive arguments from pro se litigants and they've done fairly well. And that is an important part of our justice system that you don't, you know, yes, having a lawyer is a good idea, but that you do have the freedom to represent yourself. Um, it's the ultimate freedom of choice. It's an interesting thing in, in Mr. Frank's case because he's not really just representing himself. And normally you can really just represent yourself, but he's arguing on behalf of all of the class members, sort of. Now, he's not technically. He's a class member, so he gets to object and argue on behalf of his objection. But if his objection is sustained, it will benefit all of the class members. So that's different than your normal pro se litigant. Well, we will be paying paying close attention. And um, I'm going to have to have you back as, as things progress and we see more about this court um, and how the different justices are working together. It's the beauty of the, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court. We may have, we've just been through a rough, um, very strong feelings about the approval of Justice Kavanaugh. And yet as a body, they're all in there doing their job and continue to do so no matter how much acrimony is on the outside. So we'll have to watch and see where his influence comes with the court. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. And um, maybe we can see how my predictions came out. We'll see how your predictions came out. And so we've been sitting here enjoying, as I do on every episode, a tea. And I chose for you a pomegranate green tea. Uh, pomegranate is a symbol of life and rebirth. And I think that's appropriate for the Supreme Court. You're a wonderful person, too. But, but just the fact that we are in a country where at least the Supreme Court can give life to a litigant who, you know, you get all the way to the top to determine what's fair and a relook at what we're doing, understanding that our Constitution is a living document, that it changes. And there is, in a sense, a rebirth 
with each case that comes before court as to how we're looking at how our rights should be protected. So with that, a little uh, toast, a little of our tea, and thanks, Mike, for joining me. Thank you. I enjoyed it. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire.